Now, last week in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, we learned there what true Christian love looks like. If you recall, not in the abstract, but in the concrete. How we learned that it's, it's one thing to know it in theory, it's another thing to know it in practice. And so Paul focused in on that, that concrete of practice with a rapid-fire series of verses showing us primarily what love looks like when it's shared with friends or those within the family of faith. But now today, as we pick up the passage in verse 14, the focus now shifts to how we are to respond to our enemies and when confronted by evil. And so today's sermon is entitled, The Christian Response to Evil. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we are confronted by evil, as we've just been reminded in the video we just watched, that Pharaoh had an evil plan, an evil heart, and yet your power was greater. And that, Lord, you were, you were over even a man like him and, and still had uh, a plan and a will that was greater than we could understand at the time. And so, Father, we thank you that even in this time as well, that when we are confronted by evil, that, Lord, you have a way for us and that we can rely on your power which is greater to sustain us. And so, Father, as we dive into this very challenging word this morning, it's it's easy to understand, yet it's very challenging to apply. We pray for your grace and your power to work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, that we can not only receive this word, but that by your Holy Spirit we can live it out to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may have seen the History Channel Uh, television drama which made the infamous 19th century feud between the Hatfields and McCoys come to life. Anyone seen that that history uh, channel where Hatfields and McCoys? Well, if you've seen that program or know the story about this legendary feud in the American West, it it all started out over a petty fight over a hog. Whose hog was it? That's what started this legendary feud. But this fight, this, this squabble over whose hog it was, turned into a bloody vendetta that continued unabated for decades. Members of both clans committed brutal murders, and their fighting brought heartache to every family in the valley of the Tug Fork River along the border of Kentucky and West Virginia. Yet the two men who started the whole feud, William Hatfield and Randolph McCoy, These men who were responsible for starting this feud with so much bloodshed, they themselves were never brought to justice in a court of law, and both actually survived to live long lives. And yet, in those long lives, they had to witness firsthand what they had set into motion, the suffering and death of many of their loved ones, and both bitterly maintained to their dying days that they were in the right and the other family was in the wrong. Now, this is a grim picture, but an accurate picture of the way that the world responds to, its, responds to evil and towards its enemies. But now our Lord Jesus showed us a very, very different way, that we as Christians are now given an example to follow. That rather than seeking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and and vendettas that go on forever, Christ showed us a way 
that can end all of these feuds and violence forever. And the Apostle Paul expounds upon our Lord's teaching. So let us begin, if you have not yet turned there, turn to Romans chapter 12, and we'll pick things up in verse 14. The first thing we learn there is this. The Christian responds to persecution not with insult, but with blessing. The Christian responds to persecution not with insult, but with blessing. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now the famed British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was known for his sharp tongue and quick wit. And on one occasion, a certain Lady Astor became quite exasperated with him, and she said to him, Winston, if you were my husband, I should flavor your coffee with poison. To which Churchill quickly replied, Madam, if I were your husband, I should drink it. (laughs) Now on another occasion, an MP named Bessie Braddock scolded Winston for drinking too much, and she said to him, Winston, you're drunk. To which Churchill quickly replied, And Bessie, you're ugly, but tomorrow I'll be sober. <laughs> now, we, we chuckle at these, right? And, and we chuckle partly because in our own flesh, the instinctive thing to do when we are insulted is to reply with an insult of our own. It, it's wired into us to defend ourselves and to lash out at the one who has hurt us. But here, God's word directly instructs us that the Christian is not only to bite his own tongue, so to speak, if you have nothing good to say, say nothing at all. That's the bare minimum of what a Christian is called to do. But Paul says to actually go a step further by not only biting your tongue, but by actually going this giant leap forward to respond with a blessing. Now here, Paul is directly echoing the teaching of our Lord Jesus from Luke 6. And there in verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, there's not a lot of words there, but those words pack a lot into them, don't they? What Jesus just said is is utterly impossible to do in our own flesh. It is utterly impossible for us, apart from God, to do any of those things. And so we can't do it in our own strength. It is only once we have truly received God's mercy and grace for ourselves, recognizing that Christ loved us, died for us, and provided the way of salvation for us, listen, while we were yet his enemies. It is then and only then that the Holy Spirit grants us that same divine ability to, like Christ, who on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, right? They are actively killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. This divine supernatural strength, this is now given to us to do for others what Jesus has already done for us. Because you see, our flesh simply revolts against this sort of thinking. Our flesh says of our enemies, but, but that person, he doesn't deserve it. Or, or she, what she did to me is unforgivable. But remember, the moment we say that, the moment we say that someone else doesn't deserve my mercy or grace, remember that we, you and I, did not deserve Christ's mercy or grace. 
We had done nothing to merit it, nothing to deserve it. We were yet his enemies when he died for us, when he blessed us. And so he set the example for us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 21 to 23. He says, To this you were called, writing to believers, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now here's the example. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now listen again. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So you see, we're not called to something that God knows is impossible for us to do. He's not going to call us to something that he won't enable us and give us the strength to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so if we are to truly follow in Christ's steps, that means that, that we, you and I, in the face of whatever opposition or evil that we may face in this life, that rather than retaliating with insults, rather than seeking revenge or to get even, we are to give the ultimate blessing of truly desiring and praying for the salvation of the one who opposes us, that they too may receive the same undeserved mercy and grace of God that we have. And so this is the first thing that we are called to as Christians in the face of evil. Do not return insult with insult, but with blessing. The second thing we are called to now in this passage, the Christian enters into both the joy and sorrow of others. Now this is a slight switch of gears. The Christian enters into both the joy and sorrow of others. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, one way to verify that our heart is in the right place and that we are not harboring envy is to sincerely rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, in practical terms, this could mean, tell me if this hits a little too close to home, but this could mean that if you're a farmer and your neighbor is telling you how his field did 50 bushel to the acre... But all the while, you know that your field right next to his field, you planted at the same time, the same variety, everything, but yours only did 25 bushel to the acre. Whew. He's telling you how he feels pretty good that his did 50 to the acre and yours only did 25. Can you still sincerely rejoice with his blessing and with his good harvest? Can you do that? This is where the rubber hits the road. How about when a friend is telling you how her child has really improved his grades in school. He'd been struggling, but, but now he's really turned the corner and his grades are improving. And yet you know that your own child is really struggling right now. Can you still rejoice with the other's child's success? Or how about when you go to a friend's birthday party and, and there you see them getting way more toys than you got at your birthday party? Can you still rejoice with them? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, while all those examples may be challenging enough, they get twice as difficult when those same good things happen to someone that we consider an enemy. Doesn't it? 
Can we rejoice when good befalls someone who is opposed to us? This is the ultimate challenge. And even then, we are to guard our own hearts against envy and bitterness by still sincerely rejoicing with them. And now he goes in the opposite direction. We are also instructed to enter into the sorrow of others by weeping with those who weep. Now this calls us to the duty of showing compassion by empathizing or sympathizing as we are able with those who are dealing with any sort of personal suffering or loss. Now the word compassion contains the idea of suffering with others in such a way that we help shoulder their sorrow. We help share it with them. Now from the story of Job, one of the positive examples we can take from his three friends is that when they came and saw how great Job's loss and grief was. They were so overcome by it that they too wept. They, they tore their robes. They, they threw uh, ash on their heads. And they simply sat with him in silence for an entire week. For seven days, they simply sat with him. And in this regard, they set a good example for us to follow. However, we see that once they began to speak, they then set a bad example to follow because He then proceeded to try to blame Job's suffering on some sort of secret sin that he must have committed. And finally, after this lengthy debate, Job tells them that they were in fact miserable comforters and that it would have been better if they had never come in the first place. And so too, when we mourn with those who mourn, may those we seek to comfort be glad that we came and that we focus on simply sharing the grief of the moment, helping shoulder that load rather than trying to explain why it happened. Because sometimes in trying so hard to say just the right thing, we forget that a simple hug and our presence can often speak speak much louder than our words. That doesn't mean that there won't come a time for words, but let the one who is grieving set the pace and when the time it is to be silent and when it is time to speak. And so... We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. And now thirdly, the Apostle Paul would tell us, the Christian does not discriminate, but humbly seeks to live harmoniously with everyone. The Christian does not discriminate, but humbly seeks to live harmoniously with everyone. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, in order to live in harmony, it is necessary that we continually root out every sort of pride from within our own hearts and attitudes. And the sort of pride that Paul is addressing here is what kids would commonly call being a snob. Someone who's got their nose so high in the air that they're just always looking down on everyone else. Being a snob. This is what Paul is addressing. Snobs are obsessed with questions of personal status and position and seek to only associate themselves with those that they deem to be of equal or better status than themselves. Now, most of the time, these distinctions are based upon someone's wealth, how much money they have, could be their family name, could be their position, their job, it could be their personal charisma or coolness, it could just be their success in life, whatever it is that we used to establish someone else's status or position. A classic example of this would be in high school, when only the so-called cool kids are wearing, you know, designer jeans and expensive clothing, and they're hanging out together. 
But then another student tries to join this group, but they're wearing clothing that is obviously from a thrift store. And they are quickly discriminated against and, and pushed out of this circle. Likewise, we see in the Gospels that the Pharisees, they had this same snobbish attitude and discriminated against almost everyone because they considered almost everyone outside of their elite religious circle to be beneath them. They were above everyone. And so when Jesus came along and began to actively associate with the poor and the outcasts of society, they became indignant. And they tried to slander him by calling him a friend of sinners. Think about that. They slandered him by calling him a friend of sinners. Now think about that. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Aren't you glad? Because if he were not a friend of sinners, you or I could not be his friend. We can never have been saved. And so again, we follow Jesus' example. He did not discriminate or, or be condescending towards others. He did not look down on others, regardless of position or status, but rather in humility. He sought them out and he befriended them because he said, it is not the righteous but the sinners that I have called to repentance. And so we follow his example and we too in humility we are kind and friendly to all. We do not discriminate against others or, or not associate with others because we deem them beneath us. And likewise, as a church body, we are to be free of this sort of discrimination and have this be a place that is genuinely open and welcoming to all because all need Christ and he welcomes all to come to him. And so this is what we are called to, to not discriminate. And so now we return to the predominant theme of this passage. And point number four that Paul would draw to our attention is this. Christians are to seek the way of peace in all relationships. Christians are to seek the way of peace in all relationships. Verses 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For as it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now there's a story told of a professor who was awoken one night by his telephone ringing at 3 a.m. It woke him up from a dead sleep. He jolted awake, fearing it was an emergency. He scrambled to answer the phone, and the voice on the other end said, This is your neighbor, Mr. Smith. Your dog is barking and keeping me awake. Well, the professor thanked him kindly and hung up the phone. The next night, it was Mr. Smith's turn to be woken up by his telephone ringing at exactly 3 a.m. It jolted him awake. He scrambled to answer it. He, he, he answered, said hello, and the voice on the other end said, This is the professor. I just wanted to let you know that I don't own a dog. Now, just like with the insults earlier, this sort of vindictiveness or getting even or settling the score is highly satisfying to our sinful flesh, isn't it? He, he really got even. He really settled the score, right? But we must remember what Paul told us back in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. 
He said, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Right? One of those evil desires is to get even. But in Christ, we are called to no longer obey those evil desires. We obey Christ. We follow his example. And so this means that when we are wronged, when we are slighted in some way, and that old sinful flesh and its desires cry out for satisfaction, cry out for revenge, cry out to settle the score, we must remember that sin is no longer our master. We must no longer obey it. Rather, we have a new life and a new master who is Jesus Christ. And he is the one we now obey. So rather than worrying about settling the score, we are told now to do this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now take note that this instruction to live at peace with everyone does not mean that we compromise on what is right or wrong. And it also does not mean that there is never a time to stand firm on something, even if that brings conflict. And that is why Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. Now, what this means is that a peaceful relationship cannot be one-sided. It cannot be one-sided, by definition. Our responsibility for our side is to make sure that our side of the relationship is right. That our inner desire is genuinely to be at peace with all men, even the meanest and the most undeserving. We must seek to forsake any grudges, settle any bitterness, and forgive from the heart all who harm us. Now, the Apostle Paul knew more than a thing or two about conflict. We, we see in the book of Acts and through his writings that Paul was opposed by just about everyone everywhere he went. And yet, despite being repeatedly slandered, insulted, betrayed, arrested, whipped, and imprisoned many times over, Paul's aim, we know, was the same as what he instructs us here. As far as it depended on him, he sought to live at peace with everyone. Now, does that mean he was always at peace? No, because he did his side, but those who opposed him were not. And so, in other words, Paul wasn't looking for a fight, but neither would Paul back down from his mission of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who needed it, even if that meant they hated him and attacked him for it. He would not back down. Now, the fact is that sometimes some people are just looking to pick a fight. And just because someone is, you know, fishing for a fight doesn't mean that we have to take the bait. And so instead of reacting, take a deep breath, pray for self-control, pray for wisdom, and then seek to respond in such a way that peace is, is being pursued as the outcome rather than, you know, lashing out in a way that pours gas on the fire. But also note that Paul said to avoid conflict if it is possible. And sometimes it simply is not possible because no matter how peacefully you are responding to the other person, they continue to persist in such a way that their, their, their words or actions are simply way out of bounds. And in that case, like Paul, do not run away from the problem, but be direct, speak the truth, and then stand firm in the face of whatever adversity you receive in return making sure that your words are ones that you can stand by and account for, that they were not insults, that they were not vindictive, but you sought as you were able to speak the truth in love and stand firm on that. 
And so we do this in such a way to be without insult and without desires for vengeance upon the person with the ultimate desire to bless them. For if there is ever a place for vengeance, if there is ever a need for for judgment to befall someone, remember, that is not ours to dish out. For if we try, we are actually stepping into the place of God. This is God's role and God's place, and we better not step on his toes in this regard. For as verse 19 tells us, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For as it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 24, verses 19 and 20, we are also told in in the light of, of leaving this to the Lord. We are instructed, don't fret because of evildoers. Don't envy the wicked, for evil people have no future. The light of the wicked will soon be snuffed out. And so because we can leave this in God's hands, we don't need to fret about the evildoers in our world. We don't don't need to envy the fact that they seem to be prospering for a season because we know that in the end, the Lord, who is righteous and perfect in his judgment, he will deal with them perfectly. And if we try to step into his place, we are going to make a mess of it. There's a story told that when Abraham Lincoln was a young man and still an attorney, he was once approached by a man who, who angrily insisted on bringing a lawsuit for $2.50 against an impoverished debtor who had not paid his rent. Now, Lincoln tr- tried very hard to discourage this man from this lawsuit. He knew that this debtor had no money to his name. There was no way he'd come up with $2.50, which was a great sum of money for that man in those days. But this man, however, would not be dissuaded. He was bent on revenge, on teaching this debtor a lesson. And so when Lincoln saw that the man would not be put off, he finally agreed to take the case, but only for a legal fee of $10, thinking that surely this man would not proceed if he were to lose money in the process, even if he were to win. But much to Lincoln's astonishment, the man agreed to pay the $10. And so when the day in court arrived, Lincoln proceeded to give the poor defendant $5. And he then willingly confessed to being late on his rent, and he proceeded to pay the lawsuit amount of $2.50. So when all was said and done, the man, bent on revenge, came out behind by $7.50. The debtor actually came out ahead by $2.50. But even more astonishing than Lincoln's ingenious settlement was the fact that the vengeful plaintiff was actually satisfied by the fact that he had won the lawsuit and taught him a lesson. (laughs) Even though the man left with $2.50 in his pocket for his troubles. You see, revenge never pays in the end. When we step into that place... We're going to mess it up. We're not going to get it right. Only God can get it right. It is not ours to repay. It is God's. So let me ask, is there a cycle of revenge in your life today? Perhaps it's an ongoing verbal battle with someone, a co-worker, a spouse, a child, a friend. It may be a simmering feud with a neighbor or even a fellow Christian. Whatever it is, our Lord wants it to end. For even when vengeance is truly required, it is a weapon of such devastating power that God alone can handle it justly. 
So leave it in his hands. Forsake the way of vengeance and pursue the way of peace in all relationships. And now finally, as a capstone to this entire section, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christians overcome evil by doing good. Verse 20, on the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is where the rubber really hits the road. I mean, this is what separates the the contenders from the pretenders. For it is one thing to withhold vengeance. Because all that requires is that we do nothing. It's It's like biting our tongue, not replying with an insult. It means doing nothing, right? We don't do the wrong thing. But now this is, again, going a huge step further. To go from doing nothing to actually returning evil with good actions of kindness. And these must overcome our natural feelings for, for, for vindictiveness or for revenge. But if and when we actually do something kind, a tangible action of kindness in reply to evil, we are told that this has the effect of heaping burning coals upon the head. Heaping burning coals upon the head. Now, scholars believe this phrase may have originated from an ancient Egyptian custom that when a person wanted to demonstrate public contrition, he would carry on his head a pan filled with burning coals to represent the burning pain of his shame and guilt. And so the point is that when we reply to someone's evil actions with good actions, their God-given conscience will actually shame them and bring conviction. When Nelson Mandela became president of South Africa in 1994, he appointed the Peace and Reconciliation Commission to bring to trial all those who were guilty of atrocities during the time of apartheid, when the black people were segregated from the white people. A provision was made that any law enforcement officer who voluntarily would face his accusers directly and confess to his crimes and offer restitution would not receive further punishment from the court so long as it was agreed to by the victim. So at one such special trial, an elderly black woman was brought face to face with the white officer who confessed to brutally murdering her only son. Asked by the judge what she wanted from him as restitution, she said, Although I have no family, I still have a lot of love to give. She then requested that the officer visit her regularly in the place of her son so that she could be a mother to him. And then she said, And now I would like to embrace him so that he can know that my forgiveness is real. And as the elderly woman made her way across the courtroom to the witness stand, the shocked officer became so overwhelmed with his shame and the conviction that he felt and the remorse that he felt, he was so overcome he began to shake violently and fainted on the witness stand even as the mother went over and wrapped her arms around him. A reporter who later interviewed the woman said, I was awestruck by her dignity, but yet I was baffled. It was as though she and I were not members of the same species. Hers had wings and an extra soul. 
For you see, while this kind of love and grace and forgiveness is entirely baffling to the world, the world sees it and and it just can't make sense of it. Why would a mother do this to the murderer of her own son? They simply, they're in awe of it, but they cannot understand it. And yet in not understanding it, they cannot deny its power. For the pain that that woman inflicted upon the officer was not sinful revenge, but the convicting fire of God-given love that can help lead someone to not only conviction, but to repentance, reconciliation, and even friendship. For yes, those two did go on to be friends, and that officer became like a son to that mother. For while the world believes that the best way to deal with one's enemies is to get even or even to get rid of them, God's word shows us that the best way to deal with our enemies is to show them love with the aim of turning them into friends. For that is what God did with us. So therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set this path for us. That, Lord Jesus, you have walked the example out for us in plain terms that we can see how, Lord, when we were your enemies, you walked to the cross. And you did not speak words of judgment and condemnation upon us, but words of forgiveness and grace and mercy and welcome. And we thank you, Lord, that while we were yet your enemies, you died for us so that now we can become your friends because we have received your grace through faith. And so, Father, by by this example laid out for us, we pray for the grace and the strength to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to follow his example and pursue the pathway of peace. That, Lord, each one of us in our lives, we we have faced those who have hurt us, who have insulted us, We've had times, Lord, where where we gave in to the flesh and we replied insult for insult and, and sought to get even. And of this, Lord, we confess and repent. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be like Christ and that when we are confronted with insults and with evil of any type, help us to be like Jesus and to seek the pathway of peace and pursue it and even to go further, Lord, to seek to do good for those who would oppose us. And so we pray, Father, that you would work in and through us to this. We pray that you would work in our world and that the Lord, that the world could see that though they cannot understand it, they cannot deny its power, for it is the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. To this we set ourselves today in Jesus' name. Amen.